0: As we turn now to the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to the book of Matthew in chapter 28? Uh, this will be, I think, Lord willing, uh, the last time will be in Matthew's Gospel for some time. Uh, so Matthew in, in chapter 28, and before we, before we read, would you please pray with me? Father, we ask uh, that, that the word of Jesus would dwell in us richly now and that the peace of Christ would rule our hearts. Help us to be humbled as we come before you now to hear from you. Would you enliven our hearts by your spirit to see you, to trust you, and to obey you you are God, and you are worthy of all of this. So we ask this in, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is Matthew in chapter 28. I want to just uh, look at these last number of verses. We've heard them a few weeks ago, but, but we'll catch them here again. Matthew chapter 28 will begin in verse 16 through to the end. So Matthew 28, verse, beginning in verse 16. baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Now, we will be looking today... At a particular doctrine, which is in relation to this text, the doctrine that we are going to look at today is called the extra Calvinisticum. If you're a note taker, good luck. Uh, You know, uh, the extra Calvinisticum. Uh, It's just a fun one to say. That may sound like a strange term. uh, It's not, you know, a, a Harry Potter incantation. Uh, This is not just a bunch of Latin words jumbled together by theologians to confuse everybody. You know, even if this is the first time you're hearing this term, which for many, if not most of us, that may be the case, you don't need to remember the words themselves, the name of the term itself. But we do need to know what this means. Because the meaning of this particular doctrine is important to give us confidence as believers. So that's where we'll be headed. Let me back up just a little bit. Last time we were together, which feels like an eternity, but the last time we were together, we looked at uh, the, the Great Commission, which is found in this same text. So, Uh, Jesus has called uh, his disciples, that is, all of his followers, I want you to go, he says, and make disciples. And making disciples isn't just telling people about the teachings of Jesus, although it includes that. It's not just making converts for Jesus, although it includes that. Uh, Not just telling people to repent of their sin and put faith in Jesus, although it includes that. It's that, that we are making believers in Jesus who are trained, in the art and skill of godliness that Jesus not only saves people, but he redeems them as his own, shaping them in his image. That's why Jesus says here at the end that he wants us to teach them how to observe all that I've commanded you, that we would become living reflections of Jesus' authority over all things in heaven and on earth, that we would be part of this building of the kingdom here that's a gift. It's a grace of Jesus that he would make us able to do this, to make disciples. So this this great commission then doesn't end at Matthew. It's really the beginning. It's the thing that launches us into the rest of the New Testament and and even beyond to us now. And and that would have been, you know, just an excellent place to close our series in, in reading through Matthew. Great commission, go therefore and make disciples. But I realized... In, in preparing for that sermon last time, that there was something bigger here at the end of Matthew than even the Great Commission itself. And I couldn't just jam it into the last sermon. It, it needed a sermon of its own to help us see just how important it is. Because if you look carefully here at the end of Matthew, the final words of, of Jesus which are also the final words in the book of Matthew. The last words are not a statement of Jesus. It's not just all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. The last words are not a statement. They're also not a command of Jesus. You know, go and make disciples. That's in there. Those things are true, important, glorious things, important in their own right, but they're not the last words. The last words are neither a statement nor a command. The last words are a promise from Jesus. Look at his very last words at the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the note that is left ringing in the air at the end of the gospel. You know, some books end with the words, and they lived happily ever after. Some books end with the words, and all was well. I love those. Jesus takes it and does it one better. He says... And I am with you always to the end of the age. This is something that we hear not only at the end of the gospel. This is not a new promise here that we suddenly discover. This is one of the first things that we learn about Jesus in Matthew. If you remember all the way back to to Christmas, which was a while ago now, in Matthew chapter 21, we hear this in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Those are some of the first words in Matthew, and now they're some of the last words. This truth that God is with us in Jesus is like a sandwich on either end of the book like arms that wrap around us and hold us tight here, that that Jesus is God with us at his birth in the incarnation, that Jesus is God with us at the cusp of his ascension after his resurrection, and Jesus is God with us now. Not only always, he says always, but, but now, today, Jesus is God with us. At every tick of that clock, God with us. Take a moment to just let that soak. The Lord Jesus Christ is with you always. Now, The big question, of course, is how? How is Jesus with us always to the end of the age? Because there's an irony here, isn't there? You know, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is with them at the very moment that he is about to leave them. We know that Jesus said uh, prior to this, he said, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. He also says, where I'm going, you cannot come, at least not yet, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Even right after this scene where, where Acts picks up, Jesus is ascending into the clouds, and, and there's, there's uh, two angels that say to the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he'll come again in the same way that you saw him. So, so there's a sense that it's true that Jesus is not with us, right? That Jesus has, has gone away. So if we were asked, I don't know who asks these sorts of things, but some people do, if we were, we were asked by someone, where is Jesus right now? Where is Jesus this very second? We, we don't have to guess at that answer. We know where Jesus is right at this moment because the scripture tells us Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. There are a dozen or more verses in the New Testament that say that very thing. I'll just uh, cite one just to show my work. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus, at this moment, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So some people might say, wait, wait a minute, that is not what my mama taught me, right? Mama taught me that Jesus is where? In my heart. You're fortunate if you have a mama that taught you such things, okay? Okay. Uh, Mama taught me Jesus is in my heart and, and and then as a kid The thought of Jesus being in our heart Can be, well, you know Confusing It's confusing to adults too But kids are really good at getting into this So, you know, they start to ask the really good questions So, you know, how big is he? You know, does he Does he shrink To get in there? How, how does he get in there? How does he fit? You know, and, and And does it hurt when Jesus goes in my heart? Is it going to hurt? Does it hurt me? Does it hurt him? And and how is Jesus in my heart, but he is also in your heart and your heart and your heart? Ah, kids, thankful for them. They ask the good stuff. You know, first, let me affirm, Okay. What your mama said, hopefully your daddy, hopefully others, at least the church at large, what, what they're telling you, it's true that if you are a believer, that is, if you have put faith and trust in Jesus and repented of sin, Jesus is with you in your heart. Not just in your, the body organ that pumps your blood, meaning in the core of your very self. That's not something we say just to make ourselves feel good. That comes from the Bible. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse... uh, Let me find it. Verse 6. Here it is. Uh, "'Because you are sons, "'God has sent the Spirit of His Son "'into our hearts, "'crying, Abba, Father.'" So Jesus is in our hearts, But it is also true, we also affirm what the Scripture says, that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is both in heaven and in the heart of believers. But he's not in both places in the same way. In heaven, Jesus is present bodily. That is, his skin, bone, hair, all that comes with a physical body is present bodily in the flesh at the right hand of the Father. In our hearts, he is not there bodily, but he is present spiritually. That is, the very Spirit of Christ is within us. And both of those are real, actual presences of Jesus and I know for many Christians, this has been true for me at various points as well that can be a struggle you know the, the idea that the spirit of Christ is within me but I don't really get to engage with Christ in the flesh You know, we might want to be with Jesus in the body to see him, touch him, talk with him be able to look Jesus in the eyes, to to see him nod his physical head, to know that he hears me when I pray, or even just to get a a, a hug, you know, to feel that physical sense of, of Jesus' love and peace, it's a pretty common desire amongst Christians To feel that, to want that. Much of that desire is good. At the same time, let me try to guard, at least me and I hope us, from from jealousy and reminding us that it's not really the body of a person that does these things, is it? You know, the, the dead, the dead have eyes, but they don't see. The dead have ears, but they don't hear. The dead have arms that don't hug. They have hearts that don't love. The body is good. It's important. It's part of who we are, but it's the spirit of a person in the body that really sees and hears and hugs and loves. So while we are not with Jesus in the flesh, the spirit of Jesus is really truly with us. Jesus has always eternally been Spirit. Jesus is God. And God is divine spirit. So as uh, this divine spirit, Jesus has many characteristics. One of those characteristics is, is omnipresence. You know what that means? Yes. Omnipresence, meaning all present. That's not to say that Jesus is everything. He's not everything. That's pantheism. But Jesus is everywhere because God is everywhere. Jesus is omnipresent, just as the Father is omnipresent, just as the Spirit is omnipresent. And at the first Christmas, when Jesus was born in the manger, his omnipresence did not change. I know this is a brain burner. Hang with me. The eternal person of Jesus at the first Christmas was born to earth became true human and took on flesh and and in the flesh Jesus was born and grew and learned and taught and lived and died and rose and ascended and now sits at the right hand of the father and will come again at the last judgment and usher in the new heavens and the new earth and all of those things he is true humanity, body and soul. There's nothing magical or mystical about that. In that sense, Jesus is just like that. Jesus bodily is always in one particular place in space and time. That place right now is at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus is more than just a man. I'll try to be as clear about this as I can. The person of Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And those two natures, his divine nature and his human nature, are fully united in the person of Jesus. But Christ's humanity, listen, Christ's humanity cannot contain all of his divinity Christ's humanity cannot contain all of his divinity. That's not to undermine his divinity. He's still fully divine, but all of his divine presence can't fit within his flesh. That would be sort of like trying to cram an elephant into a duffel bag. I can maybe get the tail in, right? It's just big. Okay? Christ is all human. All divine, but he retains his spiritual presence beyond the bounds of his skin. Jesus has always remained omnipresence, which means that while Jesus was bodily sucking his thumb as a baby, he was also spiritually upholding the sun, the moon, and all the stars. That while Jesus was bodily reclining, having a meal with his disciples over bread and cheese, he was also spiritually feeding the sheep of his saints throughout all the ages. And that while Jesus is bodily interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, spiritually, he is now in our hearts to guard us and to guide us. John Calvin talked a good amount about this reality of Christ's omnipresence. I know citing a 16th century theologian sounds like it's going to be boring, and I don't know, maybe it is. But here's just a few sentences uh, from what uh, Calvin says about this. While the Word, here he's speaking about Jesus, while the Word in his immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, We do not imagine that Jesus was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, to hang on the cross, and yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. If you didn't understand all of that, well, neither did I. But Calvin's point, I can get, we can get, is that Christ is omnipresent and has always been. And Calvin's not the only one to teach this. Many theologians and creeds throughout the centuries, even long before, said similar things. Ultimately, that teaching comes from God's Word and the Scripture. But this doctrine of Christ's omnipresence became known as the extra Calvinisticum. Remember I said we would talk about this? The extra Calvinisticum, uh, which is a fancy Latin uh, word that means Calvin's extra. So the extra Calvinisticum, the extra refers then to Christ's divinity that extends beyond or is outside of his flesh. And this old Latin term uh, was put together by people who did not like Calvin. They, they, They meant it as a way to poke fun at Calvin and other people about their teaching on the Lord's Supper. So here's what was going on back in Calvin's day. There were some that said, you know, when we eat the bread and the fruit of the vine at the Lord's Supper, that Jesus is bodily, physically present in that moment either in the bread or with and under the bread, so that we're actually eating the flesh of Christ, gross as that sounds. There are others that said, no, no, Jesus is bodily in heaven, so he's not with us in any real way at the supper at all. The Lord's Supper, then, is just a, a memorial, a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Calvin and others like him then said, we want to hold all the things that the scripture says is true together in one basket. So yes, Jesus is bodily now in heaven and in that sense is away from us. But he is spiritually present beyond the body in the extra Calvinisticum. And that real presence is near to us especially present even when we receive communion together, that that when we ingest these things it, it helps us to grasp the real union that Christ is not only with us but is within us. So in communion of the Lord's Supper Jesus is really really with us actually with us And in the heart of every believer Jesus is really with us Paul in in Colossians the first chapter speaks of this mystery he calls it the mystery of Christ in you the hope of glory he says that the with us is, is contained in some way within us which means this Jesus sees you but the Eyes with which Jesus sees you, he sees from within you. Jesus hears you, and the uh, the ears with which he hears you comes from within you. The arms with which Jesus upholds you come from within you. The heart with which Jesus loves you comes from within you. Jesus isn't me. But is united to me so deeply that he is within me. So when we put faith in Jesus, Jesus is within us. He takes our, our sinful heart and completely cleanses it so that he can make a home in us of his spirit, that we would be a very temple of his dwelling on earth. Now, let's ride this wave to the end, okay? Knowing this spiritual presence of Christ with us, that Jesus is really with us always, that reality gives us confidence. And it helps us understand at least three things. I'll be brief about these, and then we'll close. It gives us confidence in three ways. The three are these. In our pining, in our peace, and in our purpose. The spiritual presence of Christ with us gives confidence in our pining, our peace, our purpose. Briefly, what do each of those mean? First, our pining. Well, I picked this word because it starts with P, and the other ones did too, so I made it fit. What I mean by our pining is our, our yearning, our longing. That is to say, there is a true and good sense in which a Christian still pines Still longs to be with Jesus, not only spiritually, but in the body. You know, we are grateful to God for any presence of Christ with us. That's life for us. We're thankful for such things. And yet we all know there is something in this interaction that is still, you know, missing. Have you ever video chatted with someone, someone you love? or at least, you know, like them. So your video ch- chat, there's a FaceTime or Zoom or what have you, and, and you have a great interaction, and then at the end you close the computer, or press the button on, on your device, and you go, ah, that was good. There's a sense in which you're together, and yet if you ever, you hang up the call and you go, man, I miss them. Man, I miss them. I mean, it was just with them, just a moment ago, and yet there's a sense in that, that being with them is not yet complete. We are not together bodily. There's that same sense in the the Bible that Jesus is with us. He is, but he's also not with us. It's good then for us to long for a, a fuller experience of the presence of Jesus, that he would be with us in the spirit, yes, but also with us in the Bible or in the body. That's why the, the final words of the Bible have this note of eagerness or anticipation. You know, we say of Jesus, uh, or Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. And we go, amen, come Lord Jesus. There's a, there's a good sense of pining in that. That's the first. It helps us not understand our pining, but also our peace. So to be clear, pining, this longing is not the same thing as being discontented or being hopeless about these things. Jesus is with us spiritually. Not in the body, but he is with us spiritually. And and the Christian is able to hold those two realities together. That he's both with us and not with us. And and we're not letting one push the other out. That on one hand, we pine for his presence. And on the other hand, we have peace in his presence. Jesus, when he left his disciples in, in the body, he said... I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. That is, I'm not gonna leave you empty handed and empty hearted. But peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I give to you. Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present with you in the spirit. So don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't let them be afraid. I am with you always, day by day by day, to the end of the age. And until then, we have his peace. Pining, peace, third and final one, helps us understand our purpose. Our purpose. The words of Jesus here at the end of Matthew are a good comfort. It's rest for the weary soul. The person who loves Jesus hears him say, I'm with you always. You know, tuck that into the pocket of your heart. Pull it out often as a reminder to yourself, as an umbrella on an especially rainy day. But listen to me now. If you only use Jesus' words here for your own benefit... You've missed it. It is a good benefit to you, but Jesus is not just telling his followers here that he's with them always because they're sad or because they're lonely or because they're scared or because they're tired. He's telling them this because he's given them a job to do that is outside of themselves, Go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. I want you to extend my glory out to all the corners of the globe. So as part of this great commission to the nations that he's given them, he he doesn't say, well, now it's a big job. You better load up on provisions. You know, fill up on your gas tank and and pack your good socks and, and bring all the books and all the strength that you can muster up. No, he says, I'm sending you out on this great commission. So listen, behold, I will be with you. I, the very mover of mountains and shaker of seas, I will be with you, and I am all the power that you will need for this. So now go and fulfill your purpose, knowing, knowing that I am with you always to the very end of the age. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we speak to you now knowing that you hear us because you've put your spirit within each believer here. Help us to behold your presence in a way that honors you completely. Help us to long for your appearing bodily to have peace in your presence now and to pursue the spread of your glory over all the earth. Guide us in obeying your voice and teach us to trust you more. This we ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.